0: We are at the start of a new ministry year for the church. We're at the start of a new school year for students, parents, teachers, administrators, bus drivers, really the whole community. We're at the start of a new football season, and more importantly, a hockey season is right ahead of us. There you go. This is the harvest season for farmers, a new exercise season for many, new schedules and new activities of all sorts. The last year had its fair share of successes and failures, but that was then, this is now. The word succession ordinarily refers to one person following after another person, taking their place. One king follows in succession the previous king. He's the successor to the throne. Well, the word succession is, of course, related to the word success, success follows after effort and opportunity. Success is the outcome, the result of what came before it. A successful succession is that rare instance when one person follows after another person and they do as good or even better than the person who came before them. So perhaps one king was good, but his son comes and does even better. The One coach did well and the team won a championship, but the next coach comes and wins back-to-back championships. Perhaps one school year was good with good grades, learning a bunch, graduating, growing physically, academically, emotionally. But the next year is even better. A new season, a new leader, a new start. It's a time for evaluation of goals and excitement about possibilities. Well, this year we have been tracking through the book of numbers and we are now at a key time of succession. Will it be a successful succession? Well, things seem hopeful since the people are no longer standing at the door to the desert, but are standing at the door to the promised land. Numbers chapter 27 is where we are this morning. The last 10 chapters of this surprisingly interesting and applicable book of the Bible. Before we read it, let's go before the author in prayer. God of Revelation, it is a delight to have you speak to us. You speak to us by your word, that we might hear your word as your word. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come now, to invade us, to overwhelm us, that you, by your spirit, would bear witness to the reading and proclamation of your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy. But by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. There are two sections to chapter 27 that I think will be good to read together. So listen to all of Numbers chapter 27, God's word. The daughters of Zelophead, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached the entrance to the tent of meeting and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly, and said, our father died in the desert. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives." So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, what Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and turn their father's inheritance over to them. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, turn his inheritance over to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan, that he may possess it. This is to be a legal requirement for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go up this mountain in the Abram range and see the land I have given the Israelites. After you've seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. These were the waters of Meribah, Kadesh in the desert of Zin. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep sheep. Without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and the entire assembly, and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority, so the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar, the priest, who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out, and at his command, they will come in. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole assembly. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him, as the Lord instructed through Moses. Well, in order to see if this is a successful succession, it will be good to remember what has come before this. So we're going to do a very speedy review of the first 26 chapters of the book of Numbers that really comes in two parts. It's the constituting of the first army and then failures in the march. The first 10 chapters of this book are the constituting of the first army, beginning with the census in, uh, of the 12 tribes to count the fighting men of Israel to see just how many could fight in this army. And then a census of the thirteenth tribe of Levi to count how many priests there are. That's why the Greek translation, the Septuagint, calls this the Book of Numbers. But the Hebrew title is BeMidbar, in the wilderness. And BeMidbar is certainly a more appropriate title because this is really about the Lord with His people in the wilderness. Certainly, our experience still today. Well, God is holy, and so is people should be holy, and in the wilderness under the old covenant, those who were ceremonially unclean were to be sent away from the camp. But Jesus himself was taken outside the camp so that we find our holiness in him. The Old Testament purity laws describe vividly the spiritual condition with physical maladies. Jesus himself was taken outside the camp so that we have new life, abundant life, eternal life, through Christ, who is victorious over sin and death. Well, in response to God's presence and his unmerited blessings, the people worship the Lord. They bring offerings. The priests mediate between God and his people. The glory cloud is man- his manifestation in their presence, and the people don't move unless the Lord moves ahead of them. At the end of his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes to the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles who place faith in Christ, that he calls the church the Israel of God. And that's because the New Testament church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel. The Old Testament Israelites are the Old Testament church. So what we see in the Old Testament church really does help us to understand who we are and how we function today, but with a Christ focus. And so we've talked about the uniqueness of the church by seeing how it is that groups come together. There's two ways that groups form. There are center-focused groups, those groups that are uh, together because there's a common purpose or common activity. Uh, Teams and uh, groups and clubs are center-focused. Then there's edge-bounded groups like families that have clearly defined boundaries. You're either in the family or you're out of the family, but you may have nothing else in common other than being the family. And what's interesting about the church is that we fit both of those. We are center-focused on the Lord, and yet we are also a family made up of individuals who may have nothing in common with one another but Christ. And so that's the first 10 chapters. And then chapters 10 through 25, we read about the failures in the march. After more than a year of preparation, the march begins, and immediately so does the complaining. The first complaining is led by the rabble, those outsiders who join Israel who want things to be different than they are. Certainly we want that as well, but there's a difference between complaining and petitioning. The second complaining is led by the leadership, Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam. The Lord calls them out, and ultimately through Moses' intercession, there is reconciliation and restoration, and the community doesn't move on until Miriam is restored. The third complaining follows the report given by the 12 men who were sent to spy out Canaan. 10 were bad, two were good, right? And they come back and the 10 saw problems and in unbelief, they want to give up. But the two saw the Lord and in belief want to go up to the promised land. Who were those two? Joshua and Caleb. Well, in response to the bad reports, Spread by the other ten, the people rebel against the Lord. And the Lord responds by determining to destroy the whole nation. But Moses intercedes, and so the Lord indeed decides he will not punish them, but in grace offers forgiveness. But the consequence is that they will remain in the desert for 40 years. And then it will be the children, the second generation, that will ultimately inherit the promised land. Well, we then read about Korah's rebellion that's mentioned in our passage. 14,700 people die in a plague as a result of that rebellion until Aaron, the high priest, makes atonement to stop the plague. The Lord clearly shows that Aaron is his chosen high priest and Aaron foreshadows Jesus Christ. Jesus who not only offers an atonement but himself is the atonement of sacrifice. The people rebel again against Moses, but this time Moses responds in anger, and as a result, the Lord states that Moses will not be the one to lead Israel into the promised land. Again, background to our passage this morning. Later on, more complaining comes, and the Lord sends snakes, but then he also provides a deliverance from those snakes with the snake that's on, uh, the brown snake on a pole. Eventually, Israel worships that brown snake. They even name it Nehushtan, and it has to be destroyed later. But then Jesus is compared to that snake on a pole, as the one who's lifted up on the cross for our salvation. Well, finally, in these last couple of chapters, we see Israel arrive on the plains of Moab, camped at the River Jordan, overlooking the Promised Land. And that brought us to the interesting account of Balaam and Balak. Balak is the king of Moab at that time, the cursed, crazy king. And he hires Balaam, the money-mad prophet, in order to curse Israel but they discover the Lord is determined to bless Israel. Well, in chapter 25, we read about Balaam's next scheme to incite the Lord's anger against his people by having Israel worship the Baal gods and engage in sexual immorality. 24,000 people die in a plague that is ultimately stopped by Phineas the priest offering an interesting atoning sacrifice. And then we came to chapter 26. That is the second census and the constituting of this second army, those who will actually enter the promised land. We saw that the numbers are virtually identical to the numbers from the first census. And so the Lord really is going to fulfill his purpose and fulfill his promise of bringing the nation of Israel into the promised land, despite their continued rebellion and faithfulness. We see this outpouring of God's grace in order for his promises to be fulfilled. All right, after that exhausting but not exhaustive review, let's look at the first 11 verses of our passage and see succession. Two million people left Egypt 40 years ago and they entered the desert. That generation died in the desert, and a different two million people 40 years later will enter the promised land with almost a virtual complete change of people, how can there be successful succession? Because the Lord has organized the people. The Lord has given direction so that there will be smooth transition from one generation to the next. In fact, this next generation will have learned from the failures of the previous generation so that they can be even better. They can do it more successfully. The Lord organizes because the God of the Bible The one true God is the God of order. 1 Corinthians 14 says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Therefore, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. We good Presbyterians who like things decently and in order because that's what the Bible says. The Lord has put certain systems and structures and forms in place by ceremonial and moral law. But as we know, there are always irregularities. There's always special situations outside of the ordinary, and that's the case in our passage here. The inheritance laws, and again, part of the census in chapter 26, was not only to constitute the army, but also to determine how much land was going to be given to each tribe. And so it was by count within a patriarchal system this inheritance law built on a patriarchal system by which land is given to each tribe, each clan, each family, through the fathers passed down through the sons. But here in chapter 27, we have a special situation in which a man by the name of Zeliphad has died and he has no sons. So his five daughters, who are unmarried, who have no father, brothers, or husbands, are looking at the prospect of having no land. As a father of daughters, I'm especially interested in this passage. Well, verse 2 tells us, They approached the entrance to the tent of meeting, stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly, and they explained the situation. It's a beautiful picture of the system in place and working correctly. These five women brought their situation to the Lord-appointed leadership in the right manner and with the right attitude. There are many, though, that immediately read this passage and look at the situation, and their response is that the problem is with the system. Feminists who say, the problem is the patriarchal system. Of course, we know that there are nations who have a matriarchal system, but that doesn't always work either. You can have families where there are no daughters. In fact, these women are recorded in God's word as part of redemptive history forever for their godly example. So others would say that the system should just be changed so that it's neither patriarchal or matriarchal, and there should be some other form by which inheritance is passed down. Those people usually are part of a socialist government who want to put it in the government's hands so that they make out like bandits. And of course that doesn't work either. This is because systems don't save. Structures don't save. Forms don't save. There is no perfect structure that can work 100% of the time in every situation by itself. There is no perfect structure that is above corruption. Every system can be manipulated in some manner. And, of course, people spend lots of time, money, and effort trying to invent a new system in order to replace a broken system. But systems don't save. One broken system is not fixed simply by replacing it with another system, because there is no perfect, incorruptible system. And I say this as the pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church. The word Westminster refers to a system of doctrine, and Presbyterian refers to our system of government. The Westminster Standards, the Confession and Catechism, is not perfect and cannot save. And the Presbyterian form of government is not perfect and certainly can be used in ways that are manipulative and even abusive. The Presbyterian form of government cannot save. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Systems don't save. But abandoning biblical systems doesn't save either. The Presbyterian form of government, while not perfect and above any sort of manipulation, is the biblical form of government. It can be corrupted, but so can any form of government. Throwing out the biblical system doesn't fix the problem. The Westminster Standards, while not perfect, are the system of doctrine that presents what the Bible teaches. That's good. It can certainly be used incorrectly, but used correctly, it is of great benefit. Systems don't save because the law doesn't save. The law, at its best, simply shows the way things ought to be when they are being followed correctly. And then we seek to find out why when they are not being followed correctly. So when the system doesn't work, it's because there is corruption of some sort. That's what sin does. The sin itself should then be addressed so that through repentance and faith in Christ, the sin is conquered and the system works again. But then there's also situations where the system works. There's just a unique circumstance that needs to be addressed. And that's what we have here. The inheritance laws were good laws. The situation with the daughters of Zelophead, the laws needed to be brought to the Lord, who are the God-appointed leaders, and that's what they did. Verse 5 says, So Moses then brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord says what Zelophead's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and turn their father's inheritance over to them. Now, here's a little spoiler alert. The last chapter of this book of the Bible is going to show another aspect of this situation that will need to be addressed. So actually, the story doesn't end here. This narrative simply shows us the way systems and laws are supposed to work. Systems don't save, the Lord saves. Biblical systems, biblical laws, biblical forms point us to Christ and the need for wisdom in the application of the biblical system. In fact, many of the methods which we use in ministry have, at best, general direction from the Lord. But there is wisdom that needs to be applied in the specifics. That is why when someone says, well, this is the way we've always done it, is really one of the most unbiblical things you can say. Many methods are completely human inventions, but probably had a God-honoring motivation to them. The motivation is wonderful, and the testimony of past success is wonderful, but it is not the method that saves. There cannot be successful succession when specific systems, methods, and models are made into idols. And so the inheritance laws were successful because the specific situations were brought correctly to the Lord. The patriarchal system included provision for extraordinary cases. The spirit of the law was preserved, and so what we hear, see here is really the system working correctly, the general rule, and in wisdom, specific application. Again, we'll see more of that in a few weeks. So we get this review. We see um, the daughters of Zelophehad, and then we go to this succession from Moses to Joshua. And whereas this past narrative was the result of a situation. That's brought to the Lord. Now we come to a section that is initiated by the Lord. In verse 12, the Lord tells Moses to go to a mountain to overlook the promised land, which Moses himself will not enter because of his past rebellion. And with beautiful humility, Moses not only accepts this reality, but seeks the continued glory of the Lord and good of the people. Verse 15. Moses said to the Lord, may the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord tells Moses that Joshua is that appointed successor. Now I've mentioned this many times before, but probably can't say it enough. The Hebrew name Joshua in Greek is Jesus, which means the Lord saves. That Joshua takes Israel into the promised land clearly foreshadows Jesus taking true believers who make up the universal church into the eternal promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Earlier in the service, our New Testament reading included Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus then goes on to say to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. So Jesus is the good shepherd but he calls us to do the various shepherding work needed in the harvest field. So we see in this section a profound service of transition described in verses 19 and 20. Have Joshua stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. The people have followed Moses for 40 years. The transition will take some time and needs to be clear. The authority of Moses transitioning to Joshua, just as the priestly authority of Aaron had passed to his son, Eleazar. But do you hear in this the words of Jesus? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. All authority is given to Jesus Christ, And so he calls us to go and do the various mission work in the world. So there is a successful succession of Joshua following after Moses. But there's an even more successful succession of Jesus. All authority, not just from Moses, but all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Christ. This successful succession includes us as we follow Christ, who is the head of the church, the eternal prophet, priest, and king. He has put into place clear direction for how we are to live individually, but also how we are to live together as his people. And so as we turn continually to Christ in faith and repentance, there will be a full and final successful succession of God's elect saints into eternal glory. Indeed, may that truth set us free. Amen.